if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark 9. Turn on to Mark 9. If you don't have one, there are some on our resource shelf in the front. Feel free to go up, grab one of those, take it home with you. Uh, We would love for you to to do that. Uh, This morning we're at Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. And so we're concluding our time in Mark chapter 9 this morning, what what has been about a month-long study through Mark 9. Uh, And we have seen... Uh, some really, uh, some really beautiful things over the course of our time together in Mark chapter nine. We've seen um, the transfiguration uh, of um, of, uh, of Jesus. Um, we've seen uh, the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. Um, we've seen Jesus call his followers. Uh, and we're going to talk more about this this morning because verses 38 through 41 really touch back on this call to self-sacrificial living. Jesus' people, right, followers of Christ, Christians, living, self-sacrificing, humble lives. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about that this morning, but we, we've seen it already in our time uh, over the course of, of this chapter um, that was our, our primary emphasis last week, as a matter of fact, which we're going to talk about in the beginning. And so um, if you were, were to, uh, to, to, to take notes, and I always encourage note-taking, um, write this down. This is going to be kind of our, our main idea for this morning, and it's kind of multi-layered. Uh, we're going to be in a lot of different places this morning. And so uh, write this down, and then feel free to reference it throughout our time uh, together. The gospel heals the eyes of our hearts. Okay, the gospel heals the eyes of our hearts, making it possible to work together in advancement of the gospel. Okay, so the, the gospel heals the eyes of our hearts. We're going to see this morning as we, as we come to this realization each and every week that, that our hearts are in need of being made new. Our hearts are rebellious. Um, Our hearts are hard, as the prophet Jeremiah says, they are wicked. We have um, spurred God and his law. We've sought self-exaltation and the glory of our own names. Uh, And what we see is that the gospel, uh, the good news of, of Christ and the coming of the kingdom and his death for us and his resurrection to the glory of God and for our good uh, heals the eyes of our hearts. It makes uh, makes it possible to work together in advancement of the gospel while seeking the good of others through the killing of sin and the pursuit of holiness. We see a really strong call in verses 42 through 50 to be about killing sin. We, We see a really strong emphasis from Jesus in verses 42 through 50 on the seriousness of sin. The, the, the need to, at times, take drastic measures in order uh, that we might be about killing sin in our lives and worshiping and adoring Jesus. We're going to identify what sin is. We're going to talk. We're going to try to give a definition to sin. So if there's any confusion in your mind or in your heart right, about what sin is, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, this morning, but we, we land on this great hope, this grand hope that the gospel of, of Jesus heals the eyes of our hearts. It, the gospel heals our work. It makes our work something that is uh, redeemable and God glorifying the things that we do with our hands. We, we go from fashioning idols 
right, with our hands and our hearts and our minds and making idols of things that we observe around us with our eyes to seeing those things deconstructed, systematically eliminated, and then we see Christ become the center point of our entire existence, right? The one in whom we gaze upon with all glory and adoration, desiring to worship him and know him more. Come what be, no matter what the cost, to be that in our lives, right? In our personal experiences, culturally, whatever that looks like. We're going to see a little bit of that this morning. And so let's go uh, to John, uh, no, Mark. Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter, not a major curveball there if we pick up in John this morning, right? Um, no, we're going to Mark 9, beginning in, verse, um, beginning in verse 38, and this is the word of the Lord. Beginning in, verse, uh, beginning in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, all of this, just a brief interruption is uh, on the tail end of this conversation that has taken place between the disciples and, um, and Jesus about who is greater. Mostly the disciples among themselves and then Jesus addressing this issue, which we'll reference in just a few moments. But just for context purposes, that's what we're jumping in the middle of here. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones which we're going to touch base back again on what that means. That's in connection with what we read last week. One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, seriousness of sin here, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands To go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's radical language here from Jesus. Am I right? It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where The worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And so we see here, even as we're working our way through this passage, that there is this distinction, that there is this destination, destinations awaiting us, right? For those who are of of the family of God, adopted by grace, mercy, right? There is an eternal reward. There is a kingdom. There is a life that we are uh, welcomed into, that we are to enter into. And and on the other side of the coin, there is uh, an eternal separation from God that exists for those who are not a part of his fellowship, who do not believe on and embrace the work of Christ for salvation. He says in verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
Have salt in yourselves and be at peace, Jesus says, with one another. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word and for our time together this morning already that we have enjoyed, in which we have enjoyed uh, fellowship with, with one another around the richness of, uh, of the gospel and your word. Uh, for the fellowship that we enjoy as a body of believers uh, with you as we gather together and you are central in all that we do. And our desire is that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that through our time in song, through our time in your word as we approach the table at the conclusion of our service today, that you might be central in all that we say and in all that we do, that our hearts might be convicted and encouraged by your word today, that we might come to a place of, of joy and, and ultimate worship and adoration of you in light of who you are and in light of what you have done for us. Grace upon grace, we are grateful for this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, two observations that we want to make from our time together in this passage this morning. The first one Fairly short. The second one, we've got three layers to it. Okay, so hang with me again if you take notes. It would be helpful to write these things down. The first thing that we're going to see in verses 38 through 41 is informed gospel ministry. Informed gospel ministry. The second thing that we're going to see in verses 42 uh, through the end of our, our passage, verse 50, is the seriousness of sin, the pursuit of holiness, and a gospel hope. And so we're lumping all three of those things together. So number one, observation, informed gospel ministry. What does informed gospel ministry look like? How does uh, the gospel and all that Jesus has to say here to his followers inform the way that we relate with one another, the way that we engage in gospel ministry and mission, right? living missionally together as a, the body, the bride of Christ? That's our first one. And then the second one is the seriousness of sin. We're going to spend some time unpacking that, and it is going to bring us to a position of, of great gratitude for the grace of, of God. Uh, the seriousness of sin, the pursuit of holiness, and uh, a gospel hope. And so let's begin by exploring verses 38 through 41 in which we see an informed gospel ministry. Look with me at verse 38. We're going to read these verses one more time, and then we're going to make some comments about those. Beginning in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Okay, that's, that's intense, right? Right there from the very beginning, from the onset. This is a, a very unique uh, scene. They have witnessed something uh, that is both terrifying and also if we, are, uh, if we come to a place of, of saying, yes, we do labor alongside one another for the advancement of the gospel and the liberation of broken people and restoration in terms of our relationship with God and, and everything, we go, wow, that is both terrifying and really awesome at the same time. But what does John say? He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Because he was not following us. But Jesus said, woe, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. There, there, are some, there are certain sayings, even culturally, that we enjoy and have probably heard before that sound very, very familiar to what we see Jesus saying here. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ 
will by no means lose his reward. And so what do we see as we begin our time in verse 38? Well, we see Jesus continuing to address the issue of superiority with his followers, right? What does that mean? Well, last week the issue was who is the greatest? This is the conversation the disciples were engaged with in with one another as they're walking uh, along with Jesus. They're looking to one another and they're asking this question. Hey, which one of us is uh, the, the greatest, right? Where do we fall in terms of the lineup? Who's number one? Who's number two? Who's number who's back in cleanup, right? Who's kind of bringing it up the backside and we really need to start picking it up, right? This is the conversation that they're having among themselves to which Jesus responds. And this is radically different than anything and everything that we hear in the world. Whether you were here last week or not, when you hear what Jesus has to say here, you go, there is something that is uniquely different about what Jesus is saying here. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last. That he must be a servant to all. And so we see Jesus totally flips the script, right? He, he totally uh, transforms, begins transforming, and encouraged to transform idea and thought as it relates to greatness. That it's not about being at the front of the line, but being at the back. And that those at the back will, in essence, experience all of the benefits of those that will arrive first. That we must live, that you must live, Jesus says to his followers, as servants of all. It's not about being served, Right? But it's about serving one another. We see in verses 33 through 37, Jesus emphasizing the spirit-empowered life. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, because all that Jesus is talking about here, self-sacrificial living and humility and taking a place at the end of the line and living in service to other people, man, that requires a work of the spirit in our lives. To live this type of life requires a, 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 a transformation. It requires the work and the power and the strength of God living, residing within his people to live this way. Because we don't naturally live this way. That is not our natural desire. It's further emphasis of the brokenness of the human condition, right? That we desire to be first. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be first, then you, in fact, ought to be last. This is Jesus emphasizing the spirit-empowered life as self-sacrificing, self-forgetting, gospel-centered, and kingdom driven. It's about, and what we're going to see Jesus talking about this morning, in essence, is to say it's not about your little kingdoms, right? It's not about that. It is about the kingdom. It is about my kingdom, the same kingdom that we see Jesus coming into the world and pronouncing the arrival of the kingdom. He himself being the king, of said kingdom and leading in all of the ways, perfectly and beautifully, the ways that he calls his disciples themselves to live. You guys with me so so far? Humility, a characteristic of a spirit-empowered life, the characteristic of a kingdom-driven life. It is a gift of grace that we might live this way. Verse 38, the narrative continues, this time informing gospel ministry among God's people. And so the question that we might begin asking ourselves in light of what we see in verses 38 through 41 is this. 
How are God's people to relate with one another in service to Christ? Let me ask that question one more time. How are God's people to relate with one another in service to Christ? Because here, John brings to Jesus' attention the practice of one who is outside of the group, who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus' response in verse 39 is not, whoa, hold the phone, who is this guy, and what are his credentials? No, that's not what it looks like. But in fact, he says, do not stop him. Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil against me. For the one who is not against us is for us. You see, the disciples, the disciples had fallen into the same trap that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had fell into. They are falling into the same trap that you and I oftentimes fall into, seeing it as their obligation to dictate who is in among God's people and, in fact, who is out. If you're not with us, if you do not know what we know, then you are obviously not in. If you are with us and you know what we know, well, then you are obviously in. Now, what is the irony here? As the disciples are seeking to dictate who, in fact, is able to participate in this ministry, this miraculous and incredible ministry, Well, the irony is here that this man has apparently realized and experienced success in his efforts, whereas the disciples have just experienced failure in theirs. In verses 14 through 29, we we saw the disciples having spent some time, perhaps a week or so, away from Jesus uh, as he is transfigured on the mountain and then descends down to the bottom. We find the disciples' failure, their inability to set a little boy free from the demon who has been oppressing him and desiring to, seeking to destroy the image of God in him. And so how ironic that the disciples in those verses were unable to to participate and to practice and to realize success in the same way that this man has realized success in the name of Jesus, and now they're seeking to say, no, we can't let you do this. That is incredibly, incredibly ironic. On the backside of the ministry of John the Baptist, we see something similar taking place with his followers. What the disciples are wrestling with, our dictating who is in and who is out, we see the disciples of John wrestling with his followers as Jesus comes onto the scene following his baptism. We see a, a, a lot of people, crowds begin to, uh, begin to follow after Jesus and being baptized. And we see that among John's followers, John the baptizer's followers, that there is this jealousy and concern that develops. And the concern is centered in on the development, the building of their own little kingdom as opposed to the kingdom. So you've got little K kingdom versus capital K kingdom, to which John replies. Now let's, let's 
Let's understand our tendency to be a part of works similar to this. Building our our own kingdoms, right? Um, whatever that might be, whether it's, hey, like you're, I mean, for those of you that guys that are college students, right, you're coming, you're seeking a degree, you know, you're studying really hard, trying to make good grades, and for this kind of American dream that sits out there on the horizon that you desire to realize and experience in your life one day, that we might perhaps build our kingdom, right, and everybody look around and see kind of what we've got going on and how fly we are and just how amazing everything is. Or if you're working a job in here, right, the tendency might be to work, work, work all day long, right, to make fat stacks and then to just go out and just like buy all these things that makes everybody else say, that's exactly what I want. That's what I desire my life would look like. That's what I desire to achieve, making it all about the little K kingdom. What we see Jesus encouraging his followers towards here is an embracing of the advancement of his kingdom, big K kingdom, that is that is worked through difficulty and suffering, trial, tribulation, the book of Acts, right? Persecution and hardship, fire, as we see Jesus is going to reference later on. That's what the salty life looks like. That's what a kingdom-driven, kingdom-inspired life looks like. Listen to how John replies in John chapter 3, verses 27 to 30. This is to his followers about this issue of crowds following after Jesus as opposed to following after them. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Verse 28. You yourselves... Bear me witness. Okay, so you guys know, you guys can affirm what I am about to say. You have seen it, you have witnessed it. That I said, I am not the Christ. It is not about me. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He uses this imagery here of a wedding. Anybody been to a wedding this summer? This is We are on the backside of wedding season, and Anna Jones and Walt Green are celebrating that because I think they went to a wedding like every day for like two months. It was insane. I didn't even know people got married on a Tuesday, but you guys saw it. It's crazy. Right? The, 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 the picture that's being painted here is the, the bridegroom right, waiting for his bride to uh, uh, arrive and the best man standing alongside him realizing, saying, affirming, it is not about me. You guys are not here to see me. I am not central in this story. Right? But it is all about the wedding. Right? It's about the bride and the groom. That's what it's about. That's what John is saying here. And I'm not angry about that. If you have a best man that comes to your wedding who is ticked off that all the attention is like placed somewhere else, don't let him come out with you, right? Like like cannon. Put him to the side because it's not gonna work. Right? It's not about them. John has a kingdom perspective. He says it's 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 to be rejoiced. That the bridegroom is now present. He has now arrived to take his bride. Listen to what he says. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then he says something in verse 30 that draws us back into what we saw last week. He must increase, but what? I must decrease. This is what the kingdom life looks like, right? It's about the willingness to decrease, to become low, to embrace humility. And it's a spirit-empowered work. Right? God does this. 
in our hearts. He does this among a people. That's why God's people are to, are to stand out from the culture, right? Because there's this willingness to embrace difficulty for the glory of God and the good of other people, to, to take a step back, right? As opposed to taking a step forward, placing ourselves in the center, making sure all the light is shining on us. That's not, that's not what it is about. The Apostle Paul addresses a similar idea in his letter to the Philippians, to which we see an emphasis on the major issues that produce joy regardless of personal gain. We see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, a cause for joy in the lives of God's people. Paul is imprisoned and he is writing this letter to the Philippians who are concerned about his, his own personal well-being, who are desiring what's good for Paul, and, they, and they're, 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 right, they're, they're in contact with him, desiring to encourage him. And, and Paul has even caught word about some guys who are seeking to speak ill of Paul because of his imprisonment. Well, look at Paul. He's imprisoned. That's insane. That's a train wreck. Like, what's going on here? Listen to what Paul has to say. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Paul says, I rejoice. And so Jesus does not correct the work of the man addressed by John. But instead, he addresses the mentality of John himself. He encourages him towards tolerance as it relates to gospel ministry among God's people. John the Baptist speaks of the joy that results from the arrival of the groom. Paul, of the joy of the advancement of the gospel mission. And so we have to ask ourselves as we consider what it looks like informed gospel ministry to live in light of these truths we ask ourselves, what is our attitude? What is our attitude toward brothers and sisters outside of our fellowship, outside of this particular fellowship and their participation in kingdom ministry? Let me give you a really practical example for just a moment. Our, our Presbyterian brothers and our non-denominational brothers, our Southern Baptist brothers who faithfully teach God's word, with God's heart. Is there this jealousy that ought to develop among God's people because of the success that's being realized by one particular group of people while there is struggle and difficulty being experienced by another, perhaps? No. No. Right? The, the emphasis is on brotherly affection, informed gospel ministry, kingdom advancement. And so we ask, is our attitude one of intolerance and judgment, or does it reflect the attitude of Christ rejoicing in his name being glorified, his name being magnified at the core of what we're talking about here, at the core? We're talking about care in Christian community. We're talking of care in Christian community community desiring for the saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, what is good for them and most glorifying to God, which can be drastically different things. Right? How do we understand and interpret what is good for others? Well, we have to allow the gospel to inform that, right? We have to allow, uh, we have to allow the exaltation of Christ to inform that. <laughs> Again, Christ 
models, and he fulfills this perfectly before calling, calling his followers towards the same mentality. It is not so much our kingdom as it is the kingdom that is to be our primary focus. And so let's explore. Let's explore the depths and the corners and the crevices of our hearts this morning. And let's ask ourselves hard questions, right? For what am I living? To what am I living? Is it about me, right? Is it about my kingdom or is it about the kingdom? In order for it to be about the kingdom, there must be a transformation of the human heart. And so maybe we begin asking that. Like, have I experienced transformation within my own heart? Because there are marks of big K kingdom right, focused and desired lives, right, lives of, of radical generosity, right, lives of, 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 of humility, willingness to embrace difficulty, right, in order that Christ might be made much of and that his people might be sanctified, right, discipled. We've got to move on. Are you guys with me, though? In gospel-informed ministry. This is an important consideration given the words of Jesus in verses 42 through 48, in which we see the seriousness of sin, the pursuit of holiness, and a gospel hope. And so let's start with the seriousness of sin. You see, Jesus begins by revisiting the child illustration that he introduced to help his disciples understand the love and care with which they are to receive one another with. While voicing his disapproval of behavior that causes new or uninformed believers to stumble, right, to sin. <laughs> my Siri, y'all, like, I, if anybody knows how what to do with this, can somebody fix that? Like, my Siri is jacked. How embarrassing. This is, this is, this is, this is good. This is sanctifying. This is rock tumbler stuff right here, y'all. A potential outcome of what we see in these verses is the causing of, of, of brothers and sisters to fall into sin. Listen to what we see in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the sea, thrown into the sea. This is a graphic picture that Jesus paints here, right? I mean, if we can just imagine it for a moment, this massive stone. It was used to, to grind mill with a hole in it, right? With a rope tied around it, then placed around one's neck and thrown into the water. Right? It would it would produce it would produce death, right? It would produce it would produce death. In essence, Jesus says here that it is preferable to be drowned by a massive stone tied around one's neck and tossed into the sea than to cause fellow believers or one another to fall into sin. Verse 42 is a warning from Jesus as it relates to sin, our practice and the influence that we have on others. See, Christian behavior is to display the grace and character of Christ to others, resulting in produced 
curiosity and conversation as God's spirit works in the human heart. There is a great responsibility for the rescued to look out for the better good of our brothers and sisters. Those who are with us in the family, in Christ. That's what Jesus is encouraging here. Encouraging them towards Jesus and in turn discouraging them from sin. This is one reason that, that we celebrate what's going on in the life of our church right now. That we are beginning the process of membership here at Christ the King. Why? Well, so that, that we might know who we are in this thing together with. Right? That we might seek to live in obedience to all that God has called his people towards in his power and in his strength. That we might encourage one another towards holiness and discourage one another from participation in those things that are sinful. Those things that Jesus calls us and rescues us out of it helps then to consider the language of Jesus here about sin and its seriousness to understand sin and its manifestations in our lives. What am I saying? We need to know what sin is. Hang with me here. This is really important. We need to understand what sin is. And so let's define it. Let's try to understand more clearly what sin is, because I think that if we took a, a straw poll of the room, that we might be able to come to the consensus that sin is uh, evil actions, right? Actions that work against the good of other people, right? Murder, theft, adultery, right? These things are, are sinful actions. We can probably all get on board with those things, right? But there's a level to this that I don't know how many of us are really willing to dive down into. And so what is sin? Sin is this. Sin is any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. Let me say that one more time. What is sin? It is any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all things. Right? The, the Bible, our experiences, our observations all support the presence of sin in us. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that as Adam sinned, so too have we all sinned. And so if there's any confusion about the presence of sin in your life within this room, I break it to you. Gladly, okay, that there is the existence of sin that resides within us all, and that sin separates us from God. Listen to what we see as we continue on. The bottom of sin, the root of all sins, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over everything else and everyone else. Sin is the deepest, strongest, and most pervasive problem in the human race. That is a massive statement when you step back and you survey the landscape of all of the problems that we are experiencing as a people, right? That sin is the most pervasive problem in the human race. All of the other things that we observe and we go, these are major problems. And there are major problems that are observable in our world and in our culture at this very moment. Division, racism, sexism, classism, these are major issues. But what we are seeing affirmed here is that at the root of 
those things is sin. Those are particular manifestations. And so the greatest need is for the transformation of the human heart, that our sinful hearts might be restored, that they might be made new. Sin is not primarily a behavior, but it extends into our feelings and our thoughts. Sin flows from the heart before perverting a person's feelings, thoughts, and actions. This significantly, hang with me, this significantly broadens the way that we understand a believer's ability to cause brothers or sisters to sin. Feelings and thoughts, hate, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness. These are all things that are potential, uh, potential marks, right? They might lead brothers and sisters into sin. And then, of course, our actions. We were not created for this. This is not what we were created for. We were not created for sin. So why were we created? Well, let me, let me unpack just a few things. Why are you here? Why are you created? Well, we were meant to to know, to glorify, and to thank God. That's why we were created. We were created to see Him and to reflect His beauty to the world. We were meant to prefer Him over anything and everything, to treasure Him over every other treasure, to enjoy Him over and above all other enjoyable things, to prize Him over other prizes, and to want Him over every other one. This is what God has created us for, and this, this is what God is bringing us back to. Right, to, to treasure Christ above all things as we are pulled back again and again to a renewed devotion to him as supreme and preeminent before all things and ahead of all things. The spirit produces within us a sense of worth, extreme worth as it pertains to Jesus. Do you see Jesus as worthy of praise and glory and adoration and everything? And anything in your life, do you see Jesus that way? To see Jesus that way requires a work of the Spirit in us. And so if you're here this morning and you see Jesus that way, man, what cause for thanksgiving to the Lord? And if you're here and you have yet to observe Jesus in this way, man, set the idols that your heart has produced aside and enjoy the one that you were created to know and to enjoy and to adore. All of this leads us into into the responsibility that Jesus presents to pursue after personal holiness for our lives, to, to see the value and the beauty of Christ and to kill sin. And this leads us into the pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. Look with me at verse 43. Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so is Jesus saying here that there is a a real need that exists for us to take these types of measures in order to avoid sin? That we might go home this afternoon, right, and just begin taking radical action that we see reflected here in order to see sin killed in our lives. No, I don't think so, right? So let's not all go home and pluck our eyes out this afternoon because we all have problems, We have sin in our lives that we continue to struggle with. The emphasis that Jesus is making here is the the seriousness of sin and how we ought to, in light of how serious sin is, pursue after personal holiness, even if it costs us. Even if it costs us. And so while it might not be your eyes or your hands or your feet that need to be done away with, certainly we might all make a list of things in our lives that lead us away from enjoyment and intimacy with God and into other things that need to be done away with in order that we might know him greater, that we might know him deeper, that we might, that we might uh, pursue after him without all of the baggage that we oftentimes bring along with me. Consider, consider those things that Jesus says here and, and, and that you are, are currently enjoying that occupy a place that is reserved for Christ and for Christ alone, skills and comfort, right? honor and pleasures, thoughts or feelings, and know that there is nothing that we possess or enjoy. There is nothing that we possess or that we enjoy that is worth surrendering the soul for, which is what we see Jesus highlighting here. There is nothing that we possess or enjoy that compares with the beauty and the value of Jesus. Right? A, a right understanding of sin's seriousness against God and against our neighbor. Eyes open to the great love of God, his great compassion and mercy for sinners in Christ results in, get this, a willingness to take drastic measures to avoid the consequences being potential exclusion from the kingdom. What is our soul worth? Well, we get a glimpse of that, don't we? At the cross. Right, so where we see the son that is that is speaking here to his disciples that will continue to struggle throughout the remainder of his earthly ministry to the point that he is that he is placed upon the cross. The struggle, the struggle remains. To the point that we see the son enter into the brokenness of the human world. Right? Into the mess, into the muck, into the mire, into the mud, right? To all the ugliness and all the brokenness and all the sorrow and all the despair in order to what? In order to give himself, right? In order to give himself as the perfect offering, as the atonement, 
substituting himself in our place, all of the sin that we are guilty of, our rebellion from God and our pursuit after the things of this world, Christ takes God's wrath due all of that behavior upon himself at the cross in order to to redeem our souls, in order that our souls might not be lost, but not only that they might not be lost, but that we might experience intimacy and fellowship with God. And he, he, he searches after us, and he, he calls us into right relationship with himself. He makes the way. He makes, he makes the only way that we might know, that we might know God, that we might enjoy God, that we might experience forgiveness and hope and long-lasting and eternal joy. And so what in the world is not worth sacrificing for that? Nothing. Nothing. Everything that you're searching for, everything that you're looking for, everything that you're hoping for, and all the things that you have in this world are found ultimately in Christ. And so surrender these things, right? Like, toss them aside. Take drastic measures when necessary in order that the joy that is to be found in Christ might be experienced. The warning that Jesus presents his followers with is that it's better to lose an eye or a hand than to experience separation from God finally and fully, which is what awaits. Those who, who do not find rescue and comfort in the king. All of this drives us towards grace. Right? It, it drives us towards the gospel. And so we close with this, with this gospel hope as we see in Christ at the cross a God whose grace is sufficient for the past and whose strength is sufficient for the future. We see here in everything that we've read this morning our insufficiency. We see our insufficiency and yet we are confronted. We are confronted with the hope of Christ. Our personal sin and the need for new eyes, not only externally, but internally. We need transformed eyes in our hearts. The good news is that Jesus does this. He gives us new hearts and he gives us new eyes to see him and to love him, to see our neighbors and to love them as well. Not discouraging them, but engaging them. Edifying Christ's followers and engaging in gospel conversations with the lost. Jesus closes with this in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And then he says this, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I'm reminded as we read these this verse of what we see from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where he identifies his followers as salt and light. Here, he says to them, have salt in yourselves. Jesus is again referencing the saltiness of his followers. He's encouraging them to be a preserving influence in a rebellious world. 
right? To, to, to enter ourselves into, into the sinfulness, into the rebellion, the brokenness of the world. And to, and to in our being there, and by our being there, Christ's being there, be a preserving influence. Stand firm on the gospel. Love people and, and, and open the good news, God's word for them. Embracing this new life and the difficulty that it will bring. He says, he says, for everyone will be salted, verse 49, with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. The Christian life is not an easy life. The Christian life is not an easy life. And if that's your expectation for the Christian life, and you're frustrated, then I get you. Sure you would be. (laughs) But that's not what it looks like to to live the Christian life. The, The Christian life is often difficult. It feels as though we are going through the fire. And what we need to know and what we go back to and revisit on a fairly regular basis is this idea that Christ has not died to set us free, right, from the difficulty of this world, but that we might endure the difficulty of this world. And that through the endurance that takes place, the strength residing within us that makes it all possible, right, that he might be glorified. Embrace this new life. That's the call here, right? Embrace this new life and the difficulty that it will bring with all hope and confidence and assurance because of the love of the Father and the work of Christ. Jesus says uh, earlier on, let's look back. Uh, Where is it? Hold on a second. Y'all with me here? Stay with me. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Right? That there is assuredness. Right? And, and there, is, there is hope. Even of, of eternal security, no matter what comes in this world, no matter what comes in this life, because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so how do we respond? How do we respond, man? Kingdom focus, right? Like, kingdom focus. Observe the goodness and the glory of the kingdom and seek to take care of the saints desire a killing sin in our life through the spirit strength and grace, knowing and growing in love and intimacy with Christ. To desire to kill sin is a challenging thing. And so in order for us to occupy that place and to adopt that perspective requires that we gaze with full amazement at Christ. Right? That he might be sweet to us. And that in the sweetness of Christ, we might know the bitterness of our sin. And so let's consider these things as we go to the table this morning, asking these questions. Whose kingdom are we focused on? Right? Whose kingdom are we, are we focused on? And what are the things, the drastic measures that need to be taken in my own life, even now, even today, right? In order that my soul might experience eternal benefit. 